Would you bow with me, please, for prayer? Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Father, we ponder those words deeply this morning. Some in this room may be in the midst of a trial. They may be suffering. And Father, words like we I just read from First Peter encourage and strengthen us. And Father, we know that we all experience the trials of life. Some of the trials we experience are just because we're alive and live on the face of planet Earth and we are going to experience things that everyone experiences. Other trials come directly to us because we love you and we follow you and we serve you. And so, Father, whatever the source of our trials may be, I pray that you will sustain us and strengthen us and help us to do what you've asked us to do, to count it all joy and to know that you are strengthening us in the midst of every trial that we may be more and more like you. So I pray, Father, now that you would speak to us from your word. Thank you for the joy of lifting our voices in praise to you. We love you and adore you. We thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, the promise of his coming again. Thank you for his presence in our lives. Thank you for the transformation that has taken place in us because of Jesus. May we be found as faithful servants of yours today. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to James, the book of James. Today, we're going to begin a brand new series, having finished last week, the series on what every Christian should know. Today, we're going to talk about the book of James, and the particular title of the message is Joy when it's tough. But the overarching theme of this journey through this rather brief book is a faith that works. As you can see from the cover of your bulletin this morning, faith and works. Are we saved by our good works? No. We work because We are saved. Without faith, works are spiritually empty. And without works, James says, our faith is dead. What we will discover, or should I say be reminded of, is that our works for God show or prove our faith. 
Do not forget Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So today, joy when it's tough. The context to the trials that James addresses can be found in the book of Acts. So allow me to read these words to you to serve as a background to the trials that believers are experiencing as James writes. Acts 12, beginning with verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. When James writes his epistle, the events of the book of Acts are not even halfway over yet. So we keep that context in our mind. So I want us to, this morning to read the first four verses of James. And I'm going to give you a little bit of introductory information that will help us understand the big picture as we move forward over the next number of weeks. And then I'm going to zero in on two specific things that we find in these first four verses this morning. Joy when it's tough. So stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word. The first four verses of the book of James, and it says, James, a servant or a slave, the Greek word is doulos, which means literally slave, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Greetings. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. That word brothers and sisters is really one Greek word, adelphoi. So that means when he talks about the twelve tribes scattered among the nations and then saddles it up against my brothers and sisters, he is talking about Jewish Christians. The twelve tribes dispersed, scattered, Jews, brothers and sisters, Christians, Christian Jews. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, you may be seated. So by way of introduction, let's talk about the book of James. First of all, written by James, the servant or the slave of the Lord. Now, there would be, at least theoretically, three principal candidates named James in the New Testament that at least theoretically 
could have been considered to be the author of this book. The first is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples and one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, those closest to Jesus. However, as we just read in Acts chapter 12, that James died in A.D. 44, which was before the writing of this book. So that eliminates James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, as the potential author of the book of James. A second James mentioned in the New Testament is James, the son of Alphaeus, also one of the twelve disciples, but we don't know a whole lot about him, and there is no evidence historically or scripturally at all that would point to him as the author of the book. So then that brings us to the third one, and that is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the, or should I say half-brother, James, the brother of Jesus. Now, let me read some verses. Matthew 13.55. If you're keeping notes, you can jot this down. Matthew 13.55. When people were listening to Jesus and having a hard time believing that He was who He said He was, some in the crowd said, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So this James is the brother of, of Jesus. Then we go to Galatians, the second chapter and verse nine. And that verse says, James, Cephas or Peter, James, Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars of the church gave me, that is Paul and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized that the grace of God was upon us. So we jump to Galatians, and we find Paul saying, James, the brother of the Lord, is one of the pillars of the church, one of the leaders of the early church. Now, we also know from the New Testament that Jesus' brothers did not believe that He was the Messiah prior to the resurrection. They rejected their brother as who he said he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. They did not believe it. For example, in John's Gospel, the seventh chapter and verse five, it says his own brothers did not believe in him. And that would have included James. But we go to Acts chapter one and verse 14 soon after the resurrection of Jesus. And we find that the disciples are having a prayer meeting and and it says they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. Well, I wonder what happened to take the brothers from being unbelievers to joining in as part of the prayer meeting. Well, obviously, what happened was the resurrection of Jesus. Now, one more verse, and then we'll move on from this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. 
1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let me give a, a little few verses before that. Paul writes, I received what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And, and then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James, his brother, got a special appearance from Jesus. A special post-resurrection appearance from Jesus. Jesus had big plans for his brother James. Really big plans. And so what happened then to James is he became, get this, from one who rejected Jesus as the Messiah until after the resurrection, James became the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, you can call it the first Baptist church in Jerusalem if you want to, but it's just the first church in Jerusalem and James is 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 the pastor and he is a pillar of the early church he sat in, over and convened what we know as the first Jerusalem council described in Acts chapter 15 where the early church leaders with James voice being so influential made the decision that a person does not have to become a Jew before becoming a Christian or does not have to to be circumcised before becoming a Christian and that was a significant decision in the early church now James was ultimately martyred in 62 AD in fact he was stoned to death all of the all of the apostles and then also the brother of Jesus James were martyred except for John who was exiled to Patmos now all that in our minds James identifies himself in the first verse not as a brother of Jesus now there would have been some religious clout This letter is from James, the brother of Jesus. He didn't say that. This letter is from James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you in that introduction alone, in that identification, you get a picture and a snapshot of the kind of man that James was. Now, there are a lot of stories that have emanated from the first century about James. And some, we, we can't obviously verify all of them, but the one that resonates, I think, with many of us is that James was called Camel Knees. The reason he was called Camel Knees was that he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that he rubbed big calluses on his knees, causing his knees to look like the knees of a camel. A man of prayer. Now, written by James, the brother of Jesus. Now, let's move on. Written to whom? The diaspora. Jews scattered around the world today are still called the diaspora. Those who live in, in Israel, but those who are scattered, those in Israel are not, but those who are scattered are called the diaspora. So those who are scattered, but then in the second verse, he says, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. So who's he talking to? Jewish believers who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we'll get there 
pretty soon, but he says, if a person comes into your assembly, and the word for assembly is the same word as synagogue, meaning that still in 40-something A.D., the Jewish believers were worshiping in the synagogue. In fact, many people viewed them as a sect of Judaism. So James is writing to the Jewish believers who are scattered by persecution, but also some who were present on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, who heard the gospel, were saved, were baptized, and then went home. So those Jewish Christians scattered over the Roman Empire are the recipients of the letter. Now, when was it written? We think 48 to 52 A.D. in in that framework, 48 to 52 A.D., which could make it the earliest New Testament book written. The only reason we're not absolutely certain is Galatians, some say, was written about 48, 49, 50 A.D. Others say it was written in the mid-50s. If it was written 48, 49, 50, then either James or Galatians would have been first. If you take the later date for Galatians, then James is first. But obviously, it's either first or second as far as being the epistles of the New Testament. Now, written why? This is important. Why did James write? He addresses many issues, as you shall see. But faith works, a faith that works is overarching everything in the book of James. Standing up under trials is another reason that James wrote. He wrote to encourage, correct, and direct in his epistle. Now, let's talk about his written style as we continue to think about the introduction. Written style. James is very practical. Very, very practical. James as a book is very practical, although it would be an error to say that it is not also theological. It is both. But it is very, has a very heavy focus on practical day-to-day Christian living. So if practical day-to-day Christian living rings your bell, then James is going to ring your bell. And believe me, James will ring your bell. If you've ever read it, you know, you know that James will ring our bells as he talks about practical day-to-day living. James is very direct. He gets it said. Five chapters, I mean he gets it said in five chapters. Now, James is very imperative. If you're one of those guys or ladies who says, I don't like anybody telling me what to do, then you're in for it. Because in the book of James, there are 108 verses, and in those 108 verses, there are 59 imperatives. 59 imperatives in the book of James, written from a pastor's heart, one who believed only after he saw with his own eyes the risen, resurrected Jesus. Now, lastly, as far as introduction is concerned, what are the written themes of of James? Well, when you have 59 imperatives, it is not easy to pick one or two written themes. In fact, I can't, 
I really can't do that. But what I do want to share with you is at least four major themes that run throughout the epistle of James. And the first is this, real faith works. Real faith works. The word faith is used 14 times in James. Real faith works. If your faith is real, it will be shown in the good works you do to serve the kingdom of God. Second theme is trials will happen and you can make it. Trials will happen and you can make it. He's very encouraging and he's speaking to people who are being persecuted and facing trials. And so trials will happen and you can make it. That's a theme of the, of the epistle. Third theme is keep on growing spiritually. That's an admonition to us. Keep on growing spiritually. So that's applicable to the 20-year-old. That's applicable to the 85-year-old and everybody in between in this room. Keep on growing Spiritually, we never reach a point where we say, I have arrived, I'm there, I don't need to grow anymore. I, I, you know, most people won't verbalize that, but they act like it. So, some people do. So we, we're not, we're not part of that. We believe that we should grow spiritually until the day Jesus takes us home to be with Him. So that's what James is saying. And number four theme in the book of James, Material things will not be satisfactory to your heart. Material things will not be satisfactory to your heart. James never condemns material things, but he does address the issue of material things capturing our hearts, and he says it will never be satisfactory to your heart. There's lots of wisdom in James and discussion of wisdom, It's needed and it's available. In fact, James will say next Sunday in the next verse, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God for it and God will give it. We'll talk about that next week. There are strong Old Testament overtones all throughout the book of James, which should not surprise us because, remember, the audience is Jewish. Okay, that's enough introduction. Hope that proves helpful over the next several weeks. So here are the two things that we zero in on before we're done this morning. Number one, joy and trials. You aren't serious, are you? Joy and trials. You aren't serious, are you? James says, count it all joy. Consider it joy when you face trials. And Our reflexive reaction to trials is not joy. That's not our reflexive reaction to trials. But James says, consider, ponder, think about it, dwell on it, count it, put it in the column of joy. And he's going to tell us how to do that. Now, he starts out with the word greetings in verse 1, which is a form of the Greek word for grace. So it's kind of like grace to you from me and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he drops the first bomb of many that he will plant on us. And he gets our attention immediately. When anybody starts out like that and says, when you face trials, count it joy. I'm going to sit up and say, "Uh, yeah, tell me more about how to do that. And that's exactly what James is doing. 
So he says, consider he is not. Most of you have one of these and you know how to put a smiley face on it. You're sending a message and, and you put a smiley face on there. That's not what James is talking about. He's not talking about putting a smiley face on your phone. He is talking about something that we consider, we ponder, and then we make a decision. We decide, I'm going to count this trial as as joy. I'm going to think on it in a certain way. And he's talking to brothers and sisters, to believers. He says, count it not just joy, but count it pure joy, unvarnished, unmixed joy. Now, James is not saying that every trial is good. Of course he's not saying that. We know that. You know that. He knows that. Not every trial is good. He's not saying that when you enter into a trial that you should just walk around like with a smile on your face like you've lost your mind. That's not what James is saying. He is saying since trials are part and parcel of what it means to be a Christ follower, then think on them as joy. Whenever, he says, that tells us something else. Every word's important. When you, when you have five chapters, 59 imperatives, every word's important. So James says, whenever you face trials, what does that tell us? It's going to happen. It's not if you face trials. James does not say if you face trials. He says whenever, when you face trials. Last Sunday we talked about eternity. So we, talk, we talked about death. And, and we observed then that if Jesus tarries in His return, we're all going to die. It's not a matter of if we die, it's when. It's when. In this text, James tells us when you go through the trial. So you and I will. Now, I'm thinking that there probably aren't many in this room who would say, well, really? I, I think you know what the trials of life are about. And, and I wish I could tell you you don't have any more coming, but I can't tell you that. Because in all probability, you do have more. And you may be in the middle of one right now. So are you serious? Yes, James is very serious. And he speaks of trials that are literally variegated, you know, multicolored. What that says is they're going to, they're just, they're going to be different. Some will be spiritual, some will be physical. Trials themselves are not joyful, but we put them in the joyful category. We embrace our trials because Sovereign God is at work and will accomplish something we cannot currently imagine. Now, don't get the wrong picture of Brother James. He's not, it's not like I see trials out there and I say, oh, come on, come on, I'm ready, come on, come on. I'm, I'm not that dumb. No, that's not what, that's not what he's saying. It's more like, Wow, that hurts. That hurts. God, help me. God, I will trust you. God, help me to glorify you. God, bring good from what's happening in my life. It's what James is talking about. I don't know what your trials may be. But what I do know is this. You'll know it 
when you encounter them, you'll know. You see them face to face. And then we remember the words of Scripture, count it joy. Now, that leads us to the second and final thing, because we got how, how do we do that? So the second thing this morning is this. Why should we consider it joy? Why should we consider it joy? Look, look again at, at verse three. Because the word because is the explanation of what he just told us to do. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. So, why should we consider it joy? Three reasons. Number one, testing produces perseverance. And the word perseverance is not passive, it is active. You are scattered abroad, he said to those Jewish Christian believers. You are persecuted, you are tested, it's hard Count it joy because it produces perseverance. It produces spiritual toughness and ruggedness in your heart. Do not wilt. And as you persevere, the world will watch and marvel at your perseverance. It's part of our witness. The second reason why we should consider it joy is persevering makes us stronger. We've all heard the saying, no pain, no gain. Well, there's a sense in which that is true in this context. Persevering makes us stronger. The untested life is soft. It is not trials that make us stronger. Hear me well. It is not trials that make us stronger. It is persevering in trials that make us stronger. Let me give you an illustration of that from the world of exercise. Some of you exercise. Some of you do or did Perhaps you've lifted weights. Maybe you've done a bench press a time or two. You at least all know what it is. So picture someone laying on a bench, and there's a weight that they're going to bench press, and so they have a spotter or a helper or a friend. So you're laying there on the bench, and you tell the friend, okay, I'm ready, and he or she picks up that weight and puts puts it down into your hands, And at this point, nothing's happened except you feel the weight of that barbell and those weights pressing on your chest and on your arms. And so far, all you've experienced is the trial. You haven't done anything yet. You just experienced, you feel the weight of the trial. But then the objective of the weightlifting is then that you put your whole strength into it and with pressure against you, you lift that bar up into the air and then you show resistance as you bring it back down and up and down however many times it is. That's a picture. Just 
having the weight laying there on your chest, that's the trial. And it hasn't done anything yet until you say, I am going to lift this thing up and bring it back down and lift it up and bring it back down. That is when you are persevering in the trial. And that is what makes you stronger. You're not stronger just because somebody puts the bar on your chest. You're stronger when you lift the bar. Now, why should we consider it joy? Testing produces perseverance. Perseverance makes us stronger. And number three, persevering shapes us into the person God wants us to become. There's a purpose. Trials are not a sign of God's displeasure. They are opportunities to persevere and perseverance shapes us, toughens us and matures us. Now, Oswald Chambers in spiritual leadership wrote what many of you have read or heard before. Here's how he worded it. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Never accuse God of not knowing what is happening. He knows. He is sovereign God, and He shapes us as we persevere in the trial. Trials come, and we can either persevere or we can crumble, but we persevere for His glory. We count it all joy, and we know that we are being shaped and molded into the men and women that He wants us to be. F.B. Meyer, famous preacher, said trials are God's vote of confidence in us. It's amazing. I'm sure there are times when you said, you know, I don't really want that vote. It's hard. It is hard. It is hard. But count it all joy, James says. I read a story this week. I may be the only person on the face of planet Earth who didn't already know this. Um, So maybe you do, maybe you don't. But you do know, if you've been watching sports news, Mariano Rivera, great relief pitcher for the New York Yankees, was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame last week. The first person to ever be elected unanimously. Every ballot. Babe Ruth was not unanimous. Uh, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle, all those people from the, from our glory days years ago. None of them. Until Mariano Rivera was elected unanimously to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was a relief pitcher. 
They call him a stopper. He had a cutter, a pitch that he says God gave him. He's a dedicated Christian, loves Jesus passionately, speaks all over the country for his faith in Christ. So, you know baseball, you know Mariano Rivera. His greatest failure on the field occurred in the seventh game of the 2001 World Series when the Yankees were playing the Arizona Diamondbacks, right after 9-11. So now do you remember it? Right after 9-11. Our hearts were so sensitive toward New York City that it actually caused some of us who would never do otherwise to pull for the Yankees in the World Series. In the seventh game of the World Series, bottom of the ninth inning, Mariano Rivera, who was always at his best in the playoffs, gave up two runs, and Arizona won the game in the bottom of the ninth and won the World Series. Before the game, Rivera had addressed the Yankees and had talked to them about not knowing what would happen, but believing with all his heart God would get the glory from his play. He walked off the field that night with his head held high, like he always looked after the game he talked about God being glorified and he didn't want to lose but he did but the rest of the story is this one of Rivera's best friends was a Yankee infielder Enrique Wilson because the Yankees lost the city of New York canceled the victory parade that they were to have had right after the World Series And because the parade was canceled, Enrique Wilson had no reason to stay in New York, so he changed his flight from the flight that he was on to an earlier flight so he could go home to his native Dominican Republic. The flight that he was to have been on was American Airlines Flight 587, which crashed on takeoff into Queens, New York, a neighborhood in Queens, killing 260 people. Maybe you remember it because it was the first airplane crash after 9-11, and everybody wondered immediately, oh no, has it happened again? It was not related to terrorism. And after that crash, Mariano Rivera said, I'm glad that we lost the World Series Because if we had won, my friend would have died. Now, I hesitate to even use that story because 260 people did die. To them, the World Series didn't change a thing. They died. But I look at that story and the witness and the testimony of Mariano Rivera, and all I can say is, God, I don't know what all you're up to, and I don't know what all you're doing. But God, I trust you. I trust you with all my heart. And when I face the trial, when I face the trial, I pray that you will help me to count it all joy and to persevere. Let's bow for prayer. So, Father, as we begin the book of James, we ponder our lives and what we are experiencing, what we have experienced, and what we have no way of knowing that we will experience. And so we simply say thank you for saving us. And when we face the trial, help us to persevere. 
knowing that perseverance will make us stronger and shape us into the men and women that you want us to be and will be such a vital part of our witness before others who don't know you. Father, somebody in this room is in the middle of a big trial today. It hurts. I pray you would strengthen them, hug them up close to your heart, help them to know your presence, help them to know that they are surrounded by men and women of God who love them. And I pray, Father, that you would sustain them in the trial and help them to persevere to the glory of God. Now draw to yourself someone here today who doesn't know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Every service we close with an invitation, inviting someone to come and give his or her heart to Jesus. I'll stand right here. We'll sing to give your life to Christ. Come and place your hand in mine and say, Pastor, I need Jesus. A member of our staff will be here to pray with you. And will you come right now as we stand and sing?